All right. So as a last time to remind you of this, because we will be finishing the Psalms of Ascent today, we'll have one uh, conclusion type lesson next week, but and then two weeks Richard's going to start his series. But today we will actually finish the last two Psalms of Ascent. And just as a reminder of why we're here, because I told you I was going to do this every time, so you're going to remember this. If you remember nothing else at the end of this, we're here because these are kind of the preludes to the worship services in Jerusalem as they would go and make their pilgrimages from their various villages in Israel or Judah. They'd go up to Jerusalem to go to their worship services for the Passover or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Booths. And these men, sometimes women and children, would go singing these songs. And whenever they'd be singing these songs, it would remind them of what they were going to do and why they were going up to worship. And it's kind of the same thing that we're doing now because this is kind of our our prelude to the primary worship service. This is our kind of journey. You know, we journey from our various villages and towns around the Jackson metro area. And we come here to worship in the primary worship service. And during this time, these kind of act, this can kind of act like our sort of pseudo-psalms of ascent as we prepare for the primary worship service in just a minute. And that's the, why we're studying them. They can be used in that way. And so these are our journey, once again. So it's nice to kind of rehearse where we've been on the journey. So as I've also been doing, we're going to kind of rehearse where we started in Psalm 120 and where we're ending up in Psalm 134 today. So we started downtrodden separated from the people of God, surrounded by those who want, want war. We move on to remind ourselves that the help from the journey comes only through Yahweh, who will forever keep us and protect us. Then we rejoice at our arrival in Jerusalem, pray for her peace and unity. While there, we look upon the Lord with a longing gaze and beg for his mercy and relief upon us. Then we move to celebrate God for his providence towards us and his guiding hand of protection. After that, we're back extolling the glories of being physically and spiritually in Mount Zion and the blessed peace that exists there. We move on into holy laughter and overflowing joy that comes from considering the great things that the Lord has done for us. The next psalm then moves into a brief movement that asks God for a flood of God's blessings, especially upon those who weep and mourn. The overall message of the psalm that followed that was that In life, all is vanity if the blessings of the Lord are not upon your efforts, whether that's building a house, whether it's your vocational work, or whether it's raising a family. Three weeks ago, we had two contrasting psalms in terms of emotion. First, we had the blessed man. The blessed man fears the Lord. He enjoys the fruits of his labor. He has a loving wife. He has invigorated children. And he seeks the prosperity of the worshiping community. Then came the curse of the imprecatory Psalm 129. The study of that psalm culminated in us remembering where the blessings and the curses come together in the most explicit way, which is the cross. Then we had the mini gospel presentation of Psalm 130, which started with the acute awareness of one's own sinfulness, followed by the affirmation that there is forgiveness that the Lord grants, followed by confident waiting, and then the evangelistic tone of the last two verses of Psalm 130. Psalm 131 covered Christian humility and contentment. And then last week, we consider the longest of the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalm 132, which primarily focused on God's promises made through the Davidic covenant. We put a a big focus on the Davidic covenant there and how the Davidic covenant is ultimately fulfilled with Jesus Christ. (laughs) And then today, we finally reach the peak of the ascent. Remember, we kind of 
said that these psalms, they start in a low place and they peak towards the end of them. And today we're really going to see the peak of the ascent here. So the closing, these closing two psalms, hopefully they're going to make your heart swell with joy because we're extolling both the worshiping community in Psalm 133 and then the Lord which that community worships in Psalm 134. So these provide, I think, a fantastic conclusion to this journey. So we're going to look at them together. You know, whenever Dirk made his presentation or Sunday school series about the Psalms, he kind of drove home the point that they're intentionally arranged. And you can really see that in the Psalms of Ascent where they start in a low place and they ascend and they end up in a very inspirational and joyous place by the end of the Psalms. So you can see that they're very intentionally arranged like that. So with that... Let's start with Psalm 133. These are two of the, the shortest of the Psalms of Ascent, too. So, actually, the shortest, tied for the shortest. So, Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes, It's like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessings, life evermore. So here we have a psalm that celebrates the bliss and the beauty of brothers dwelling together in unity as a consecrated community of the living God. So remember, we're dealing with the Psalms of Ascent here. Don't forget that we're where we are in this altar. Psalms of Ascent. So we got the men and the women here. And maybe the children, they've been traveling, they've been singing together, and they reach Jerusalem, and they're gathered together, and they're in one accord singing and worshiping in the temple. And during this time, both their travels and as they're together on these feast days, they're essentially, they're all living together, basically. And that's, there's, a, there's a potential for big conflict there, obviously, when you get the, a group, the thousands of groups of people that are gathered together They're living in tight quarters. And human nature is no different then than it is now. So you know you have very big potential for conflict here. There's bound to be some butting of heads. If you've ever, you know, lived with a small family, you know that this to be the case. If there's thousands of different families together, you know that there's very big potential for conflict here. But the psalm says, oh, how sweet it is. It's so sweet when all of these people come together, whenever they're loving each other with pure covenant love, and they're dwelling in harmony and a God-blessed peace. This this psalm here, it will serve a, a twofold purpose here. One, it celebrates the glories of when this occurs. And then two, when trouble arise, when trouble did arise then singing this is going to remind those who tend to be causing the trouble of how good it is and pleasant it is of the unified dwelling together. So the the first, if, if everything is going great, then they would sing this. Oh, this is fantastic. We need to remember this, how fantastic it is. But if there's a problem somewhere, if they were to sing this, then maybe the person or the people that are causing the problem would turn it, would, you know, click. So, oh, yeah, yeah, it is great. It is blessed thing when brothers are dwelling in unity. And so these points are really driven home by the two. There's got two very vivid similes here in verses two and three. And we'll look at them in, in the reverse order. So in verse three, read that again. 
It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing of life evermore. Really focusing right now on the simile of, of the first half of the verse there. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So just to give you a bit of, of uh, Near East geography here, Mount Hermon's at the northern end of Israel. So if you can picture Israel right here, Mount Hermon's at the northern end up near the Sea of Galilee. Okay. So apparently, even to this day, according to eyewitnesses that I, that I read, even to this present day, Mount Hermon is still quite a sight to behold. Apparently, it rises very suddenly from the landscape, from the horizon, and it kind of sits there almost by itself. Got Mount Hermon there. And apparently, it's a, very, it's a beautiful mountain. It's not just, you know, just standing there with just a bunch of rocks. It's apparently a very beautiful mountain. It's always got a cap of snow at the top of it. And apparently, the view, the, the, view, the dew that falls around it is very thick and very rich dew, and it falls there pretty much year-round. So the dew that's around on the mountain and right around the mountain is a very thick dew. And so this dew brings a lot of, of life and vegetation that surrounds Mount Hermon there. So if you're at Mount Hermon, up on the northern part of Israel, if you could picture the next part of Israel's geography, down in Judah and in Jerusalem, you've got Mount Zion. And so Mount Zion, on the other hand, it's down here in the south. And Judah and Jerusalem, it's more dry. It's, a, it's an arid place. And even if you go like just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, you're in the desert. So you've got the rich beauty and dew of Mount Hermon, and you've got dry Mount Zion down here. So Mount Zion is obviously of great importance to Israel. It's where God's um, special presence dwells. But still, it's, it's still kind of it's dry. It's an arid place. <coughs> and so they're too far away from each other. These are many, many, many miles away from each other. So they're too far away to actually have the physical dew of Mount Hermon fall on Zion. So this is really, you know, a simile here. This is not the physically the dew of Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion here. But the simile is going to, it serves to drive home the point that when Israel to the far north can bless the brothers in the south and vice versa, getting this unity back together here, even geographic distances, the unity that they have with each other is very sweet. It's refreshing. It's soul-restoring. It's life-giving. The dew of Mount Hermon, the brothers up here, are blessing the brothers down here at the same time. So that's important here. It's driving home this point of how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, whenever they're together, whenever they're striving for the same thing. It's life-giving to both groups. And then verse 2. Verse 2, we've got another simile here. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So we've got another simile expressing the beauty and the rich blessing of this situation that's described here. So whatever's, what's going on here? At the anointing of the high priest probably know this already, but we're going to reiterate it. At the anointing of the high priest and the first high priest being Aaron obviously. At his anointing, oil is poured on his head. It's a big ceremony whenever they're anointing the high priest, oil is poured on his head. And this just wasn't just any, any oil. Exodus chapter 30 describes the recipe for this oil. And it says in Exodus chapter 30 that the finest spices and the finest olive oil is used in its composition. 
So you get the, it's actually a very specific recipe in Exodus chapter 30. We're not going to read it, but it involves cinnamon and a lot of sweet smelling things. I mean, this was the finest stuff that they could find in Israel and the finest olive oil, olive oil to mix it with. In fact, this oil was so precious that it was forbidden to any, for anyone else to copy the recipe. They couldn't, it was forbidden obviously for them to steal the oil, but they couldn't even make it in their own house. The recipes here is published in Exodus chapter 30, but it was so precious that you were even forbidden from copying the recipe and making it in your own house. Okay, so this was, this was really good stuff here. This was really good oil. And then look again at the scene that's described in verse 2. It's running down his beard onto the collar of his robes. Now, they had very precious, ornate robes here as the high priest, and he likely had a big, giant beard, obviously, and I don't know, this just doesn't sound very good to me personally. <laughs> I'm in a bunch of oil running down my beard and onto my clothes. But this was, this was, a, this was a big deal to the high priest. And this, was, this was a beautiful picture there. It's on his head and it's running down everywhere. And the brothers dwelling in unity is just no mere drop of this oil. This expensive and precious oil is described to be used in such abundance that it's running down the beard and the collar of the beautiful robe. So it wasn't this, this unity that the brothers had, this sweet, expensive, very precious unity that they had was not mere, it was not supposed to be just one, one drop on the head of Aaron. It's supposed to be running down everywhere. So they're supposed to be giving and receiving a lot of blessings to each other. Remember, the oil also had theological significance, too, because it signified the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the high priest. So the oil, the anointing oil, signifies the pouring of the Holy Spirit onto the high priest, too. And the priest, the priest, remember, his main responsibility, he had all these responsibilities, but all these symbolized him being the mediator between God and man. That's what mainly the high priest would do. All of his duties symbolized him being the mediator between God and and man. And whenever he was be, he's the mediator, he needed to be blessed by God's, God's spirit, obviously, as he ministered in either the tabernacle or later on in the temple. And so they would need, he would need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his life to really be an effective mediator between God and man. Likewise, it really does take the blessings of the Holy Spirit to ensure that sinful people can dwell together in such blissful harmony, Right? I think we would all agree with that. It really takes the work of the Holy Spirit for us to see exactly what the this first the verse first of this psalm says here. Good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Because it really is. <clears throat> because we're all sinful people. And in the church today, it's even better for us because we have a high priest who desires to bless his people in a way that Aaron could never accomplish. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Hebrews. Go this afternoon. Read the whole thing. It'll be good for you, I promise. Jesus Christ, likewise anointed by the Holy Spirit, desires to bless his church. And one of the ways that he does this is by commanding and allowing the members to live together in unity. This is explicitly stated many, many times in the New Testament because... All believers are spiritually united to Christ, and if they're spiritually united to Christ, they're going to dwell together in unity. This is a goal, something you have to work towards, obviously, because we're still sinful. But by the power of the Holy Spirit and because you're unified in Christ, 
We can dwell together in unity. And it's good, and it's pleasant. Obviously, this is a spiritual union, and it's a great blessing. And this fact is easily experienced in a church where unity is held in high regard. I know uh, I've been in this church for a little over 10 years. And I could say that unity is held in high regard here. It's something that, that we, we do make a big deal about. And that's a good thing. It really is. Because a lot of bickering, a lot of infighting in the church is it's not good. But I can say in this church, that's not something that I've experienced at least. And so if you've ever been in a church where there is a lot of, lot of that, then um, it's not good. It's not pleasant. But it is. It's good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. That's why you have all the warnings in the New Testament about avoiding dissensions and gossip and all these things that can filter their way in and start very small and then grow and grow and grow and grow. But it's a blessing to gather together together in unity and dwell together in unity. (coughs) So back then in the psalm, look again. I'm going to read verse 1 and then I'm going to skip down to 3b. Read those together. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So in between these two, you've got these two similes. But these two really form one cohesive thought right there. Good it is, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Where has he commanded the blessing? Where people are dwelling together in unity. So according to this psalm, when they dwell together in unity, three things result. You get three things result here when brothers dwell together in unity. The first thing is goodness. Goodness is something that's objective. It's ontological. It says something about the nature of unity that God is going to declare it good. Absolutely true. No room for argument. Unity is good. No argument there. The second thing is that it's pleasant. So if goodness is objective, pleasantness is actually subjective. It's experienced by the brothers. Goodness is something that God declares it to be. The pleasantness pleasantness is something that we experience. So it's pleasant. There's peace. There's joy. Unity brings all these things. Pleasantness, peace, and joy. And then the third thing that results when brothers dwell in unity is that God commands a blessing there. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. God says that he is going to bless the body that is unified in his truth and that comes together to worship him. Look how, look how the psalm finishes there. God has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So the psalm even now brings in some eschatology here. So if you've got the present, how... Dwelling together in unity is a blessing of goodness and pleasantness. But in the end, it brings life forevermore from the blessings of God. So this is the reality of the worshiping community. When Jesus comes back, he inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. You're going to dwell together in perfect unity there. Pure, sweet unity. It's going to be goodness, it's going to be pleasantness, it's going to have God's blessings, it's going to have life forevermore. I'm looking forward to that. So think about these wonderful truths. Think about these inspiring truths. We're going to sing this song together. 
to ourselves and to our God, reminding each other of really what a blessing it is to dwell together in unity. So now we're going to sing Psalm 133. If everyone has a copy of their Psalter there. I'm going to sing it to the tune of Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. If I have one, we're good. On to Psalm 134. Psalm 134, let's read it together. A song of ascents. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So what a way to end the journey here. You got blessings, blessings everywhere, blessings everywhere in this psalm. So you could see how we've really reached the peak here. We've got the brothers dwelling in unity. And then we've got blessings to God and blessings from God. This is really the peak of the Psalms of Ascent. This is the peak of the Christian life. Blessings to God, blessings from God. And in this psalm, you've actually got the beginning and the end of, the worship, of a worship service. I don't really know if this is like how they would start maybe the celebration, the feasts, because for verses 1 and 2, you've got a call to worship. And then verse 3, you've got a benediction. So they might have started it this way. I don't know that for sure, obviously. But you've got a psalm here that has a call to worship and you've got a benediction. And like I said, there's a lot of blessing going on here. It's a bi-directional blessing. And you see, it's the same Hebrew word for bless here in all the verses one, two, and three. It's not that I think some translations might have translate one and two as praise, and then three is blessed in the sense that we praise God, but He blesses us. But it's the same Hebrew word either way. We're blessing God; He's blessing us. At the same time, it's it's plural in verses one and two, which is which is interesting. So bless the Lord. Right there, come bless the Lord and then lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. 
the Hebrew verb there is, is, gives us a sense of it being plural. So you've got the worshiping community, the whole congregation, blessing the Lord. And then in verse 3, may the Lord bless you, that you there is singular. So the God is blessing individually all the people that are in the worshiping community. Obviously, he, he dispenses his blessings upon the whole worshiping community, but he dispenses them to the individual people themselves because the you there is singular. May the Lord bless you. So you got that benediction there. So the, like I said, the call to worship there is in verses 1 and 2. If you notice, this is an imperative. Come. It involves action on the part of the worshiper. The worshiper here isn't merely just to stand around and to expect the blessings of verses th- verse 3. No, the worshiper is to be active. He is to come. He is to bless the Lord first of all because worship is active. Worship is not just passive. It's not just sitting there. It's active. So here, while you're today, while you're here today, bless the Lord. Be active. Bless the Lord while you're here. Extol his virtue. As Psalm 103 says, which also starts like this, bless the Lord, and then it continues, forget not his benefits. That's part of blessing the Lord, is remembering what he's done for you. So bless the Lord, forget not his benefits. All of the worshipers are to be actively involved in the worship service. The heart should be lifted high, focused on the God who in turn, then turns around and bestows his blessings upon them. So now I've spent 10 weeks now reminding you about the purpose of the Psalms of Ascent and our time together in Sunday school studying them. And then all of it culminates in this last Psalm of Ascent in a call to worship. That's when the gathered assembly receives its greatest blessing and worships with the most intense fervor. This whole time they're worshiping, but at the gathered assembly in the primary ordained worship service, that's where the worship really concentrates here. That's why they have a call to worship here. <clears throat> and we have the this, this same arrangement here in our church. Our order of worship is arranged very intentionally. It's intentionally in the same. I come from a church where we did not have an order of worship. We actually did not have any structure whatsoever. And it's kind of strange, honestly, if you were to go there. There's, just, there's a thought that's supposed to be led by the Holy Spirit, which I, on the one sense I get. But God is a God of order and he ordains things in a way. And it's, our order of worship is arranged very intentionally. And it is a blessing. And our order of worship opens with a call to worship. Just like it does right here in Psalm 134. It opens with a call to worship. And this should be the pinnacle of your week as a child of God. This is when your heart begins to be really lifted high. So you worship not from any sense of obligation, you worship because you love the Lord your God. You don't go in trudgingly. I have to go worship because there's something right to do. No, you worship because you love your Lord your God. You forget not his benefits. You're there to bless him. So the call to worship is a great time in the weekly life of a Christian. So pay specific attention to it today. Just, don't just think of it as another part of the service. It's a part that really sets your heart to where you're going in the worship service. And then likewise, the benediction. (laughs) The benediction is not just an afterthought. These are not just two bookends that we put there. They're important parts of the worship service. I know they're very short, but they're very important. The benediction is not just an afterthought, a vital part. It's during this time that a man who has been set apart specifically to minister to the community 
communicates God's blessings back to his people. The benediction isn't a prayer. It's an explicit pronouncement of blessings that are 100% assured to us by God. That's why benediction should be scripture. It's because it's assured to us by God. It's something that God communicates to his people. In this case, in the case of a benediction in a formal worship service, it's that a man who has been set apart blesses God's people. And so... If you just just listen to some, some of the great benedictions in the Bible. We use all of these in our church. Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Very simple. Or Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working that within us that is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or the psalm that we just finished. Verse 3 again, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. And with an explicit statement of God's power, the one that made heaven and earth, the one who made heaven and earth, may he bless you from Zion. The great benediction. So don't discount the benediction here. This is a reminder of God's grace to us and his desire to bless us. The call to worship states our desire to bless God, and in the end, you have God's desire to bless you. And in this psalm, it's singular. Whenever it pronounced the benediction, the benediction is from the minister to the singular members. Sure, it's to the community as a whole, but it's to the singular members too. May God bless you, you specifically, and keep you specifically. May you remember God's grace specifically. Remember God's desire to bless you. You specifically. <laughs> so savor the benediction this week. Savor it like that last bite of spiritual food that's going to sustain you till the next Lord's Day. And so remember these things. Remember them as we sing this psalm, blessing God at the same time that we receive his blessings to us. I'm going to sing this one now too. So Psalm 134. If you notice there, it's just one verse. So we're going to sing it twice. I'm going to sing it two times. We're going to sing this to one of my absolute favorite melodies, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners, or Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Either one of those tunes, they're, they're both the same. We're going to sing that to this. Within this sin. 
Richard Jackson, you close us in prayer.